We all you in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord once again. And it's been a good while since I've been here at uh, Prairie. Uh, you've changed the looks of the auditorium, I can tell. There used to be a piece out of the back there when I was here last that I remember. So that's good. Quite a few more people. I'm glad to see that. Glad to be back with you. And just to put some numbers, I guess, to it, uh, that means that Warren and I must have known each other. Well, he knew about me at least for 38 years or so since we'll be having our 38th wedding anniversary this coming June. And it so happens that uh, Dennis and I were at Messiah Bible School at the same time in 1973. So you can figure that one out. Because I was on the third bunk and he was on the second bunk right beside me. I don't know if he remembers that, but I was looking down on him a bit then at that point. (laughs) Uh, And he had a girlfriend. I remember that too. She's now sitting beside him there. All right. Well, the message this morning that I felt God wants me to share with you is taking from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the last eight verses of that chapter. I'm going to uh, strive to bring an expository message concerning this passage of Scripture. And I guess the question that I have for you this morning and for myself to be thinking about is, am I living a transformed life? Are you living a transformed life? That's a key verse in this passage. Therefore, therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, all things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. We want to look at these verses, and I have summarized it this way, that... In nine words. Summarized in nine words. We're going to look at nine words this morning. Let's read the the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 15, and starting at verse 14, uh, I should just tell you what happened before that. Paul is talking to the Corinthians about the fact that uh, immortality is promised and that he's ready for death, uh, but he's also needed here on this earth. And so in verse 14 it says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, And hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made made him to be sin for us, our sin offering, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The nine words are all positive things in the Christian life that uh, we either partake in or we consider, etc. And I'll just list them right now. They all end in shun. It's motivation, identification, redemption, consecration, comprehension, transformation, reconciliation, evangelization, and perfection. That's how I summarize this passage. 
And we'll look at each of those briefly, of course. Notice that all of this can take place only if we are in Christ. In Christ. Verse 17, where it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. You know, that word or that phrase, in Christ, is one of Paul's favorite expressions that he uses in every epistle, of which he wrote 13, by the way. So he did a lot of writing. But he used that phrase or its equivalents about 170 times in Christ. So it's very important that we recognize that relationship. <clears throat> what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, I think if you're a Christian, you know what it means because that is your state. You are in him. We know the parable of the, or the analogy to the vine, how that we're attached to the vine. We have to be in him. We have to be part of him, or we're not, we're not uh, going to be living. We're not a Christian, really. We need to be attached to the vine. <clears throat> so we need to be in Christ. So let's look at these words. And uh, sure, I'd, I'd glanced over the Sunday school lesson, but I didn't study it in detail like I did for the message. But uh, believe it or not, the first word is motivation. And isn't that what we were just talking about? That's kind of amazing. The motivation that I see here that, we're, that uh, Paul is talking about is the love of Christ. If we are Christian and we have something that keeps us going day after day, we need the love of Christ in our lives. That is what should motivate us. That's what motivated Paul. The love of Christ. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Constraineth means to be compelled, to be just pushed along, should we say. And that is the cure for apathetic Christians, those that have that I don't care attitude. They've kind of left their first love for Christ. They're no longer being motivated in the proper way. And I know we talked about all kinds of different motiva motivations here, things that we talked about. <clears throat> But the Bible says we love him because he first loved us. That should be the motivating factor. Love. If you'll just open up your hearts and allow the divine love to, of God to come in you, then you can share it with others. It can come out uh, in that way. You're going to want to love God. You're going to want to serve God because of the love that he's put in your heart. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his son for us, and, God, and Christ so loved the world that he gave his own life on the cross for us. And so that very same agape love, as we refer to it, that divine love that loves without expecting love back, that we love so intensely that we just continue loving. If we do that, we can bring glory to God. And that should be our highest motivation. <clears throat> I was, re I was reading recently uh, by a brother that writes this little, little pamphlet that comes every so often. can't think of his name right now. But he was pointing out that, I think he was quoting A.W. Tozer as well, so often we're concerned about being saved, and rightly so. You know, we need to be concerned about our salvation. We need to be in right tune with God so that we are saved and we've, we've went through the steps. But that's not our highest motivation. Our highest motivation should be bringing glory to God, bringing him glory. Sure, if we do that, 
salvation is going to be part of it. But the, the overarching reason for us being here is not so that we can get saved. It's not that so, so that we can actually get to heaven. It's to bring glory to God. That's why he created us. He put us here on this earth to bring glory to him. And that should be our that should be the motivating factor in our the overall the highest motivating thing in our life. Let's get back down to us us right here. Husbands, what motivates you to get that bouquet of flowers and give it to your wife on her birthday or another anniversary or something like that? Is it because of your love for her? That should be the motivating factor, shouldn't it? <clears throat> and wives, what motivates you to bake your husband's favorite cake on his birthday, perhaps, or do something special like that? Is it just to make you feel good? Or is it because you love your husband? And children, what, made, what motivates you to do special things for your mom and dad sometimes without asking? Or without, you know, without them asking you to do it? You know, you just do something a little special. I would, ex I would expect that you do it because you love your mom and dad and you want to show some special uh, appreciation for them. And that's how we need to try to, that, that's the attitude we should have in serving Christ. We serve him because we love him. Not just because we want to put up some brownie points you know, that God recognize who we are. No, but because we love him. That's why, we'd be, that's why we do the things that we do. <clears throat> We're motivated by his divine love. So that's what I see there in verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. And then it says, Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. The second word that I'm talking about is identification. If we are Christians, then we must identify with Christ. Or we have identified with Christ. How do you identify with somebody? How do you get to understand somebody? By putting yourself in their shoes. That is, that is how you do that, as it were. Christ died for all. And it goes on to say, Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. We were all dead in sin. <clears throat> but Christ died for us. And Ephesians 2, 1 says that, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. He died for us when we were dead, when we were his enemies, it says in other places. And then he rose again triumphant from the grave, and now he's up in heaven interceding for us. We must identify with that death and resurrection of Christ if we are going to be transformed. Romans 6.5 says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So there you have identification, identifying with Christ. You know, everybody likes to identify with somebody. Everybody has their heroes, as it were. Sons look up to their fathers. Daughters look up to their mothers and try to imitate them. It's pretty easy to see that. I can see that, well, just look around. You can, uh, I was seeing that this in our, I was, we were talking particularly about our um, speaker, our special speaker at the, at the uh, school. I especially saw it after I 
started uh, talking with and interacting with the grandparents that are there. Uh, the speaker's wife's parents are here. And I noticed how outgoing the, the grandmother is, Vera Campbell? Vera Rose. Vera Rose Campbell? Maybe you haven't met her yet, perhaps. Or maybe some of you have. I don't know. <clears throat> but then their daughter, who's actually adopted, by the way, acts just like her, it seems like. And their daughters, her daughters, act like that, too. Um, so, you know, they just have the same almost mannerisms, you might say, because they're, they're identifying. They're imitating. You know, it just goes down from one, from one generation to the next. So... Who are you imitating? Who am I imitating? Who am I identifying with? It should be Jesus. And especially going through the fact that we need to die and then be resurrected again to newness of life. <clears throat> all right, if we read on, verse 15, for the, and that he died for all, that they which should live, should henceforth live unto him, should live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Again, he's talking about the resurrection, but what I'm seeing here is redemption. Redemption is the fact that Christ, that can happen because Christ gave his life. He, the sinless one, gave his life, shed his blood so that we could be bought back because we are all estranged from Christ. We're all uh, lost, <clears throat> but he made atonement. The shedding of, without the shedding of blood is no remission of sins. He made atonement for us so that we could be bought back, so we could be redeemed. Redemption. Isaiah 5, 53, 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed spiritually. We ought to add, we're not healed physically by him dying on the cross, as a few would claim. 1 Peter 2.24 confirms that, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that being dead to sins, we should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Peter was quoting from Isaiah, by the way, there. At least getting some thoughts from there. And if Peter again in 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened, by the Spirit. And so here we have uh, Christ dying for us so that we can have redemption. In the last verse, uh, first, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21, it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, it says in the King James, who knew no sin, that he might be made the righteousness of God in him. The word for sin there, that's translated sin, <clears throat> It's the Greek word uh, hamartia, and it can be translated sin or sin offering. And I'm not, I'm not sure why they chose just sin, because some people use this as a basis for the erroneous doctrine that Christ became sinful for us. And that is false doctrine. The proper rendering of this, of this verse would be better if it was sin offering or um, sin bearer for us who knew no sin. He bore our sins, that's true. But Christ did not become sinful. He was the divine Son of God. He did not become sinful. And so 
Let's, let's remember that. He remained the spotless, sinless Lamb of God that could die for us, whereas nobody else in the world qualified. You read about that in Revelation where it talks about, you know, they looked and they looked and they looked. Nobody was worthy to uh, loose the seal, I think, is uh, one of the situations there, except for the spotless Lamb of God. He's the only one that could die for our redemption, and he did not become sinful, but he bore our sin. All right. The fourth word that I want to look at is consecration. If we're motivated by the love of Christ, if we identify with him, if we recognize the redemption uh, that Christ has made possible, shouldn't we respond with consecration? That we want to give everything to him? That should be our response. Consecration is the act of devoting or dedicating our lives to the service and worship of God. Self is gone. The last part of verse 15. Live unto him themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So that is, that is consecration. Living for him, not for ourselves. Devoting our lives entirely to him. If we're living a truly transformed life, if all things have passed away and all things have become new, then we want to serve him. We're motivated by love. We have, have been redeemed. We've identified with him. We need to consecrate our lives to him. All right, verse 16 says, Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. The word I'm using there is comprehension. What does comprehension mean? Well, it means that we can understand. We have a spiritual understanding. We're no longer uh, dealing on a fleshly level, but a spiritual level. You know, comprehension is the ability to perceive what something means. Um, and, and an ability to, to grasp ideas, to know if you have spiritual comprehension, uh, the word just kind of opens up. It, it's, it's interesting how that, how that works. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians. If you'd like to turn with me, 1 Corinthians 2, to just uh, get a further description of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, uh, to the end there. It's Paul speaking again to the Corinthians in, a, in his first letter. <clears throat> And he's talking about how the things are revealed to us, how that we can spiritually comprehend when we are his followers. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. But God hath revealed unto them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. See, so there you go. He, he searches deep and reveals them to us. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man, for who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. 
I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, there were things in the Bible that before didn't really make sense, but now they did. Now you could understand. Now you could see where things fit together. I remember going to a, quote, Bible study. I guess it was because we did look at the Bible. But it seemed like there was a number of people that apparently were really baby Christians or they, that this was, not, this was a secular setting. It, I mean, it was, a, well, it was actually when I was in medical school to tell you where, where it happened. But they couldn't seem to understand what we read. It didn't make sense to them. So I tried to explain to him what it meant because it, it wasn't that hard. It didn't seem like. It just seemed like the Holy Spirit tells you what, what it's about. It's, it's spiritually discerned. And that's, that is a mark of a Christian that he can understand things in a spiritual sense when you read the Word of God. A natural man doesn't have that spiritual comprehension. He can't, he can't get it. But once you've accepted Christ into your life, you have the Holy Spirit, he brings it out. Jesus also told the disciples that when he would leave, he, the Comforter would come, and there's a lot about that in John, that he would reveal things to them, and sure enough, later on, they said, oh yeah, he told us about that, and it all made sense. You know, whereas before, they didn't seem to get it quite. It was it's spiritually discerned, and the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. So that is the comprehension that uh, Christ gives to us when we become his child. All right, then verse 17, kind of the key verse here, which is transformation. It's the sixth word, transformation. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now that is true transformation. That is complete change in form, appearance, structure, and character. When we are in Christ and he enters our lives, a complete change takes place. We experience spiritual revival or, or a new birth is what really happens. That's why it's called the second, or the, being born again, the second birth. The spiritual transformation has often been likened to the process of metamorphosis, which probably most of you know about in the insect world. You know, we know about the butterfly or the moth that lays an egg, and that's the beginning. That egg then hatches and a little worm, larva, comes out and eats up all kinds of things in sight. You know, eats the leaves, ruins crops for farmers and uh, tree growers and so forth. Those kind of things, as you probably know. And we generally would think of that caterpillar as being kind of ugly. Maybe there's some that are pretty little worms, but most of the time we think they're kind of distasteful. We don't really like them climbing on us. Most people would say, you know, get rid of those. But then they go into the pupa stage and into a, uh, into a uh, chrysalis or a cocoon. And they're all covered with this thing. They're, they're inside there incubating, you might say. You can't see them. You can't see what's going on. And then one day it opens, as you know, and out comes this moth or butterfly, whichever case it was. And now it has these great big wings that can fly around before it could only crawl. It just has a complete different appearance. 
Now there are some things that are still, there is still a body. <laughs> and uh, like us, when we're transformed, we still have our same bodies. We don't get a new body quite, not yet. But uh, your demeanor, your actions, your attitudes, all kinds of things about you become a lot more beautiful after you become a Christian than what they were before. When you were, a, yeah, maybe an irritating, uh, abrasive, you know, sinner, whatever, however you were, however I was. <clears throat> that is sort of a picture of transformation. And uh, that is the stage that I hope all of you are in or will be in soon is the stage of the adult butterfly or moth, perhaps. Something that has become beautiful. <clears throat> and so the question, I guess, to ask yourself this morning for me to ask myself is, what stage am I in? Am I still in the larva stage where you're only concerned about satisfying your own desires? Because that's what the larva is, that, that worm. He, he or she, whichever, is just out there eating and eating and eating and eating and eating because they know they have to do that in order to grow and to go to the next stage. But they're just concerned about themselves. <clears throat> they run over others and ruin things in their attempt to satisfy themselves. That's what people do too, don't they? They can ruin themselves. They can ruin other people, ruin things by them just satisfying their own fleshly desires. Or have you allowed God to put you in a spiritual cocoon, as it were, and change you so that you can now be transformed? And be motivated by the love of God to serve him in a new way. In uh, Colossians 3, it gives us, maybe I'll go there, Colossians 3 verse 5. Let's go there and read what it says, what happens when we go through this process. Colossians 3 and verse 5. And following, it's first is talking about the old man, and then it gets to the new man. Colossians 3, verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. So this is in the larva stage. But now ye have also put off these, getting rid of these things, Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. So you put off the old man, but then you have to put on the new man. Verse 10, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Isn't this a lot more beautiful than those first ones? Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even, so, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, love, which is the bond of perfectness. 
And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. That is where I hope all of you are, is in that latter part where you've put on the new man so that your life becomes beautiful. The, yeah, once the butterfly bursts out of its cocoon, we have a clear different attitude toward that butterfly, don't we? We think, oh, that's, that's beautiful. You chase after, you want to see it. You might even want to catch one. Whereas the worm, well, okay, if you're going fishing, maybe you're going to catch some kind of worms to go fishing. But generally speaking, caterpillars are repulsive, is how we would think of, of them. So we're not that interested in having those in our company. So what has happened? Let's read verses 18 and 19 back in 2 Corinthians 5. The word here is reconciliation. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, what does that big word mean? It means something has been disrupted, a relationship has been pulled apart, it's not where it should be, and reconciliation means that you've brought that back into order again. You've restored that proper relationship. You're harmonized again with the one that you offended or that offended you. And of course, we all offended God. We all are sinners. We've all, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we've all been, uh, we're all separate from God. That relationship is not there unless we become reconciled. And we can become reconciled by the fact, again, that Jesus shed his blood for us. He died for us so that we could have new life, so that we could be reconciled back to God, back in a right relationship. Reconciled means to be back in a right relationship with God. But in the process, notice what he says. He, he also made us, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 18. Who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. We can be an intermediary between man and another man. We can help in a situation between man and God. We can point out to a person how that they can be reconciled to God. We have a ministry that we are to do. We are to help people get back into that right relationship. And again, motivated by the love of God, motivated for the cause of his kingdom, that we bring glory to his, to his kingdom. So we have that responsibility to help others be reconciled. We have that ministry of reconciliation. And that leads us to the next one, which is in verse um, 20, and that is evangelization. Evangelization. Evangelization means spreading the good news to those that are lost, the unbeliever. Um, trying to help those that do not know God be reconciled back to God. It talks here about an ambassador. I think we all know what an ambassador is, but it's just to uh, remind us it is a person 
in the physical sense here. It's a person that leaves one place and goes to another to represent that first entity, for, for example, a country. So, in this case, the, the ambassador is a person sent by one sovereign, which is God or Christ, to another place, in this case, the world, to be its resident representative. We are here on this earth to represent Christ, God, who is in heaven. God, Christ, they are a part of the kingdom of God. And as a Christian, we are part of the kingdom of God. So we are now sent to this place, this world, which is the kingdom of Satan, to be a representative from God and to help in that reconciliation process. So we are God's representatives here on this earth. We're to live here in the world, but not to be of the world. Just like the ambassador from United States to Brazil represents the United States, and he talks you know, with the higher-ups there to try and negotiate things and so forth, or uh, help the relations. But when they vote for the president of Brazil, this man does not have a vote, because he's not of that nation. He doesn't belong that to that country. He's representing the United States. And that's how it is for us as Christians. <clears throat> We're representing another country, a heavenly country. We don't have a vote, so to speak, in this world, but we are to try and represent the heavenly country to help people be uh, brought into the kingdom of God. So are we doing our duty? Are we ambassadors as we should be? Are we truly representing properly our country, the heavenly country? We are to evangelize the world. <clears throat> that is, again, the, higher, the, the overall uh, motivation there is to bring glory to God. That is why we're here, to bring glory to him. Preach the gospel, spread the good news. <clears throat> and then the last one we'll look at is in the last verse, and it's perfection. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, who made him to be sin offering for us. So the last phrase, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You know, we are justified in God's sight by our faith in him. We can certainly never attain sinless perfection as here on this earth. We're, we're not of ourselves, I mean. But the Lord wants us to, we're only sinless, we're only perfect by the fact that he's taken away our sins. That is, that is how we can be perfect. But I think he's talking more here that he wants us to be mature in him. That's the idea that I, I gather from the, from the context. We're to be mature in him. He doesn't want us to remain as babies in Christ. He wants us to go on. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to get stronger and reach out to help others. And so we're only perfect in God's sight because we're cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus. But we're still in these human bodies, this flesh, and that tends to fail. And so we need to allow God to apply his keeping power in our lives as we 
mature in our Christian lives as we strive to become more and more like him. Hebrews 6.1 says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Again, I think that's talking about unto maturity. Paul, of course, uh, never was perfect either. <laughs> Even though we often lift him up as being a messenger of God, and he certainly was. He was one of the, one of the apostles. But he admitted that he is, was the sinner of sinners and, and so forth. And yet, he was always striving to grow more and more like Christ. To be in him, to be more like him, to continue to grow. None of us will ever achieve perfection on our own, uh, or should we say ultimate maturity, while we're here, because there's always more room to grow. We're always a little bit further, a little bit further. But when God takes us home, then of course we can enjoy eternal perfection when our salvation has been consummated. So I hope this morning, thinking about these nine words will help us to evaluate where we are, where I am, and whether I am motivated in a proper way to live for him.